Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Lovely. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> I, um, so when I'm president, there are lots of things I want to do. We, we have discussed a few of those, yes. Although in, <laughs> in fairness to, um, to Mrs. Trump, Oh. She is doing magic things with the Rose Garden, apparently. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Which yeah. is fabulous. That was on my list. So I'm like, thank you. She just took that right off my list. Okay. Um, I know they had lots of drainage issues and cords running everywhere and people were going to break their necks. So good for her that she's, yes. that she's fixing all of that. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so along those same lines, and it's like two or three lines down from that on my list, so they're not right there together. <laughs> fix the Rose Garden and then pack the Supreme Court. Oh, oh. But, yes. but yeah. I do have that on my list. Oh, so uh, 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 packing the Supreme Court is on your list. <laughs> it is, because I would like to figure out the best technique for doing that. So I would like, um, what I'd like is a bunch of people who are neither extremely one side or extremely the other side Okay. to pack the court with. I want to pack the court with moderates, which I think is an unusual court packing technique. Is it not? Uh, yes. Uh, historically, that would be a rather <laughs> unusual use of court packing efforts. <laughs> but wouldn't it be less likely to be opposed than some of the other efforts? Yeah, well, you know, hey. That, if that, I said, that, hey, I'm going all for middle of the road, bland people who are very neutral and sort of moderate and, you know, and well, eat oatmeal for breakfast every morning. I'm well, going it, for the Ben Bernanke's of the legal world. <laughs> Listeners, if you don't know uh, uh, the Ben that she was referencing, he was the uh, former chair of the Federal Reserve. (laughs) Under the last financial crisis in which he ate oatmeal every day to keep himself from getting ulcers. Yes, yes. Um, um, uh, He he liked the joke that um, uh, he he was a regular in all facets of his life. Can you say that? That's awesome. I would not be asking Supreme Court justices about their regularity because that's okay. creepy. But um, well, it's interesting you, uh, you you mention or express a desire for moderates on the court because uh, as uh, we discussed in our summer of SCOTUS, um, uh, the most recent most recently completed Supreme Court term saw a little bit for everybody right? You know, some rulings for the liberals, some rulings for the conservatives, some rulings that were long overdue, some rulings where we were like, wow, okay. Um, And uh, the most recent uh, Gallup poll uh, that was released uh, the week that we are recording this episode. Although not the week you're hearing it, which is quite a a number of weeks later. Sorry, we're taking a break. We're taking a break, but nevertheless, um, the Supreme Court's public approval rating is the highest, okay, since 2009. Okay. Whoa, do you think that's J-Rob? Uh, uh, J-Rob. That's what I'm going to call him from now on. 
You're it's talking like about he's my buddy. Chief Justice John Roberts. That's right. J-Rob. <laughs> Don't you think he'd like that? Um, if I left a message on his, on his answering machine, J-Rob, good, good job with this last, uh, this last term good. there, buddy. Um, you know, again, <laughs> John Roberts strikes me more of the Ben Bernanke um, school of, of public persona. Okay. I'm not entirely sure he would go for a nickname, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Um, I'm going to try it out on him when I'm president and see what his face does. <laughs> Although he's got a poker face, so I might not be able to tell. It might be that later I get a message from one of his minions saying, Chief Justice Roberts would prefer if you did not call him J-Rob. No, he would, you know, he, he prefers uh, Chief, okay, or... <laughs> Justice Roberts. For your honor, yes. Yes. So, but to take a step back, okay, what is core packing, right? Um, and Nia, you know, uh, your explanation of what you would want to do as president is uh, mirrors the, if you will, popular conception. And that is uh, when a president or by extension, a president's political party tries to change the ideological makeup of the court. Okay. Wait, pause. I have a question. Mm -hmm. So the reason you can do that is because nowhere in law is it, is the number of court justices of, of Supreme court justices prescribed, right? Like there's nothing that says the magical number is nine and nine shall be the number and there should be no more and no less, which if you get that Monty Python reference, good for you. But Right. There's nothing correct. in law that says that. So that I could have a Supreme Court of 216 people if I wanted to. That is correct. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there is nothing in the Constitution uh, that pres prescribes a certain number. So we've had as few as five and we've had as many as 10. Now. So it's what the Senate will put up with. Is that. <laughs> well, I mean. I mean, if I said, I'm about to pack the court with 200 people, the Senate would say, uh, no, we have other things to do. Uh, well, uh, even again, if they were on my side, they might say that. This is an example of sh uh, separate but shared powers. The United States Congress controls um, uh, the number of uh, Supreme Court justices and, for that matter, the number of federal judgeships. Okay. Um, and uh, the only court that is specifically mentioned in the U.S. Constitution is the Supreme Court. Okay. So we could so, theoretically not have any other courts. Yeah, that is correct. <laughs> Although that'd be a heck of a system, wouldn't it? Yes. Okay. On my first day as president, I shall say no more courts okay. and then see and what then, happens. And if you convince Congress to get rid of all of the other federal courts, you could make it happen. Okay. Um, I'm not going to do that. That's silly. And, and, and to understand, it's a two-step process, right? Um, you know, so basically in regards to uh, the construction of the federal court system, Congress passes a bill. Both houses of Congress have to do it. Uh, and then the president would have to sign it. In regards to nominating people to serve on the federal courts, it is a presidential power first with the advice and consent of the Senate. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, 
basically core packing exists when a political body has the ability to appoint judges to a court. Okay. Oh, political body. So it's not just the president. Well, I mean, think about state courts. Okay. Um, State courts have five different methods of selecting state judges. Okay. There are five different methods. One, which is very similar to um, the federal nomination system, you have a governor who nominates and uh, uh, a state senate usually who confirms. Um, Then you have uh, legislative driven uh, selection processes like here in Virginia, where the General Assembly uh, picks who are state judges. Um, you have states who have nonpartisan election of judges. You have other states that have partisan election of judges, meaning that judges run um, for judicial positions as a member of a political party. Oh, so on the ballot, there appears either an R or D or an I. Yes. Yep. Or I suppose a G if you're the Green Party. Yeah, and then or the, L for Libertarian. I don't know if those are even if those even make the list, but well, whichever the major parties are, yeah, I suppose the, you declare. Um, it. You know, it's either Democrat or Republican. And then the fifth method for state selection of judges, Nia, um, is known as the Missouri Plan. It is uh, a nonpartisan uh, system, theoretically nonpartisan. Basically, you have a commission that vets potential nominees and then gives a list to the governor and the governor has to pick from that list and whoever is picked then serves for a number of years either seven to ten and then they run for what's known as a retention election okay do the voters want to retain that person okay a vote of confidence if you will. yeah yep so 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 For instance, and you and I have discussed this in a previous podcast episode, you don't view it this way, but most scholars do. George Washington was our first president to pack the court because he got to pick all six justices as soon as he became president. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but I don't think I I don't think that's packing the court because scholars do. Because okay. he had to, like, he had to fill the jobs. That's like saying, that's like saying he packed the federal government. No, he hired people because he was the first president. Like, okay, scholars, it, I'm, I'm disagreeing with you guys. Okay, you're but, wrong and I'm right. So there. <laughs> okay, but what's interesting about George Washington is Washington never really considered ideology as much. He focused, according to most scholars, on other, shall we say, non-merit considerations. So Washington took into account geographical representation, okay? So were, you know, uh, were there justices from the South, from the North, from what was then considered the West, okay? Yeah, which was Um, about 10 feet west of Virginia, but yeah. Yeah, okay. Did he, uh, Washington also focused on personal connection. You got to remember George Washington before he was president was well known to most of the revolutionaries. Okay. He was known in the North, the South, 
the Mid-Atlantic, okay? So he knew like almost everybody, right? So he frequently focused on personal connections, okay? But early on, we did have a court packing effort that fits your definition, Nia. And that's what the Federalists attempted to do in 1801, okay? So- Oh, this is the infamous Mr. Marbury. Yes, okay, so- Which by the way, if you, if you haven't listened to that episode, you should listen to that episode because many things were found out in that episode by me. Yes, okay. Uh, whoa, this is a whole different- Yes. Yeah. But that's the outgoing government attempting to pack the judicial prior branch. right prior to the incoming government so that they could help push judicial rulings that favored the federalist if you will policy preferences right, right? I mean it was big. And that's how I define packing. I agree with you. That to me is the first episode. I don't think Washington hiring people okay is necessarily and I'm not sure how he would have picked people he didn't know. Like we, he also didn't live in a time where he could look at their Instagram and see what their life is like. Like, I mean, now vetting people that you don't know is a lot easier. Okay. And, and Back then, you had to ask people. So okay, what do you but, know about Augie? Is he, okay, is he a we, good guy? And we will get to that, Nia, because the selection process has become much more, shall we say, bureaucratic and uh, institutionalized than what we saw, you know, early on in our country's history. Okay. But the Federalist Party lost control of the Congress in the 1800 elections, and they lost the presidency. But before the Constitution got amended, the new president didn't take office until March. So you basically had from... (laughs) you know, the, the beginning of November until the beginning of March to have some fun, okay? Is that one of the reasons that that the pre- that inauguration got moved up? Well, I mean, the, the, the inauguration got moved up in large part because um, you didn't, it didn't take three months for a, a new president, you know, to get to Washington, D.C. You got to remember, you know, even as late as when Abraham Lincoln was selected as president. Right. Okay. It took him a week of traveling on a train to get from Illinois to DC. Right. Right. Okay. You think about the late 1700s. Okay. It's going to take you a while to get to DC from wherever you are living. Right. I mean, things moved slower. Okay. Things move slower. Right. Now, you talked about the number of justices, okay? Not only is the number of justices not included in the Constitution, there aren't even the rudimentary, if you will, qualifications that we have for president or members of Congress, right? Right, because you have to be a certain age to be president. You have to be 35. Yes. You have to be... A, a natural born or naturalized citizen, citizen. and okay. nobody knows what that means. Thank you for being vague constitution. Um, Cause that's a thing you want to be vague about. <laughs> and, and I think that's it, isn't it? Like that's it for president. You don't have, you don't have to have 
served in office before you don't have to have whatever yeah but there are those basic you know age and with congress there's an age requirement citizen, blah 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 whereas for the supreme court there's none of that wait there's wait 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 so you can be a non-citizen of the united states and be a supreme court justice there's no limit against it oh that okay, opens so up a lot of things for me well, well, I'm just saying there's some interesting people in other countries that would be, it'd well, be fun to that. have on our Supreme Court. Well, think about this, Nia. One of the best-known Supreme Court justices of the 20th century um, was Felix Frankfurter. Felix Frankfurter wasn't born in the United States. He was born in Austria. He didn't come to the United States until he was like 10 or 12 years old. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. I'm just but, saying that we could have had Nelson Mandela on the Supreme Court. Theoretically. There would have been nothing to keep a, a peacemaker and a, and a statesman from being on the court, except, of course, he would not have taken the job. But other than that, there's nothing that, could have prevented, that would have prevented him necessarily from being on the court. That's right. And moreover, and this always blows the mind of my students, particularly in my uh, courts and politics class, okay, there is no requirement that you even have to be a lawyer. Yeah, and I know you've mentioned that to me before, and I find that stunning. I think that there should at least be the minimum of you should have had to pass the bar. I don't know that you necessarily should have had to go to law school, because apparently Kim Kardashian is studying for the bar, but not going to law school. She's doing it as an apprentice, which is a way you can do that legally in California, which, by the way, if you're wondering if that's legal, it is. Um, so she she may not end she will never have gone to law school but she may very well pass the bar it seems to me that you should at least have to do that like if regular lawyers have to practice have to pass the bar to practice one would think that supreme court justices would need to have passed the bar fair enough but again some of our most prominent supreme court justices uh either didn't go to law school um, um, you know, so for instance, you know, Hugo Black, um, uh, received a certificate of attendance from the University of Alabama <laughs> Law School. Okay. He got, he got, he got a consolation trophy. Right? <laughs> well, you showed up. Right? Excellent. <laughs> um and you know it, so we it, don't know whether he passed anything or not he got a certificate of attendance well, he, he, he had to uh 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 he had to adjourn his studies because he came from a poor family in alabama oh okay and robert jackson um uh, who served in uh, the roosevelt administration um another well-known supreme court justice of the mid-20th century um read the law. He did an apprenticeship, then took the bar exam in the state of New York. Okay. But he never went to law school. See, okay. and I'm okay with not law school. I'm okay with, but I, I think you should have to pass the bar because I think there are basics uh, that you would need to know that the, that the bar would test whether you know those basics or not. So what you end up having, Nia, is what scholars refer to as the myth of merit. Okay. The myth of merit. Okay. Because, because the constitution doesn't list requirements. 
okay, um, what you end up having is 220 plus years of practice um, uh, to kind of sort of figure out what we are looking for, right? So to give you an example, uh, with the ex exception of L Elena Kagan on the current Supreme Court, the other eight justices all had lower federal court experience before they were nominated to be uh, a Supreme Court justice, right? And you could go ahead and argue um, that, you know, having experience as a judge on a lower court would be a good thing for Supreme Court justice. But that's a recent, if you will, attribute that has been emphasized. Prior to the late 1960s and early 1970s, it was pretty, it was a regular occurrence to have people nominated to the Supreme Court who never had judicial experience. That seems weird to me. I know in part it's because I have only been alive during the time that you're talking about, right? Oh, like yeah. I, I yeah. wasn't, I know people think I'm older than dinosaurs, but I'm in fact not. Um, so in my lifetime, sort of coming up through the ranks, right? That there's, that, that experience is part of it and going to law school is part of it. And right, like these things that they look at are sort of basic, the way you hire anybody. These are, you know, these are the qualifications and then these are the preferred qualifications, which helps separate you from other people in the list. So it's fascinating too, I didn't realize that um, Justice Kagan did not have, but she was an attorney general, wasn't she? She was the solicitor general in solicitor. the Obama administration. Yeah, so. She argued, argued cases in front of the Supreme Court um, and she was Dean of Harvard Law School, by the way, being a law professor used to be uh, a common pathway to get onto the Supreme Court. I guess because you're studying the philosophy and the theory. Well, and you're also, law. you know, and you're an administrator, so it it sort of seems like you have some experience of, in developing consensus. You know, you know, hurting law school professors like hurting basically all professors is like hurting cats. So if you can get them you know, directed to a particular mission or purpose, you know, that seems to be a good skill on a nine justice, small group body, if you will, okay? But again, you know, you know, you had politicians. I mean, Hugo Black's only judicial experience before he was nominated to the Supreme Court was he was a night court municipal judge in Alabama. <laughs> before he became a politician. President Franklin Roosevelt nominated him to be his first Supreme Court justice nominee, in part because Hugo Black was his most fervent Southern Democratic supporter in the Senate. It was, a, you know, it was political patronage, if you will, okay? I don't like that. But, so if you... <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, I'm, okay, I'm not a fan of, okay, but if, you were, you were a syncophant, so you get to be on the Supreme Court. But as scholars point out, okay, merit is, merit as it relates to nominating Supreme Court justices 
is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder, mm. right? Because some presidents focus on demographic considerations that you could plausibly argue have little to do with merit. So whether it was George Washington and other early presidents focusing on ge geographical representation, okay? I mean, who's to say a lawyer from Kentucky, okay, is any good as a judge? But if we don't have anybody from, you know, what was then considered the far west, well, we need somebody from like Kentucky or Arkansas, right? So go that, find me somebody who's not the worst person in the world. Yes. And we'll stick them on the Supreme Court. Right? Religion. Although we see now with geography that there's a, an effect because we saw that this summer with Gorsuch. And the McGurk Being a Westerner, right? Yeah. And bringing a different perspective to that. That's so right. There is and something to be said for looking for qualified people from all over the nation. Well, in fact, one of the critiques of the current Supreme Court and it's been a critique for a number of years, is that too many of the justices, okay, are from the East Coast. They all went to elite undergraduate schools, and they all went to elite law schools. Is that true of both left and right? Is that true sure. of both conservative yeah. and liberal? Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Other considerations, okay, that were important historically? Religion. We didn't get a non-Protestant on the Supreme Court until nearly the turn of the 20th century when Justice Edward White, I think was from Louisiana, was our first non-Protestant. He was a Catholic. Louis Brandeis was our first Jewish justice, and he was nominated in 1916. Interestingly enough today, though, Nia, we don't have any Protestants on the Supreme Court. <laughs> it's populated by Catholics and Jews. <laughs> okay. So we have a very unusual court, but religion used to be an important consideration. Well, I, uh, it was also an important consideration in the presidency. I mean, sure. you didn't see, you didn't see a non-Protestant Kennedy, yeah, right? Kennedy was our first non-Protestant uh, president and that was 1960. And it was a huge election issue. Right, because okay? people thought he was going to be a papist. That's that right. He was going to be controlled by the Pope. Turns out he wasn't controlled by anybody. But okay. Um, okay, then you had race. Thurgood Marshall was nominated to the Supreme Court by Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s. He was our first African American. Okay. Yeah, it blows my mind that it was that far. It, it was into that the far. Supreme Court. Okay. We of course, our... it's further than that for women. That's right. Sandra Day O'Connor, 1981, nominated by Ronald Reagan. Okay. Then you have patronage. And I know you don't like this, but that was the dominant method well into the 20th century. You rewarded party loyalists, and to a certain extent, that's still an important variable, right? I mean, the last time you had an explicit um, uh, effort to reach across the ideological spectrum to nominate somebody to the Supreme Court was President Eisenhower when he nominated William Brennan 
William Brennan was a New Jersey Democrat. But even that had, if you will, a political consideration. Eisenhower wanted to go ahead and firm up his support among Catholics, and William Brennan was an Irish Catholic. Okay? So I, we, listeners cannot see my arms flailing. Oh, yeah. She is like all kind of exercised right now. It, okay. it makes me bonkers because it, one of the things I don't uh, so I love the federal government for the most part. Um, I love the United States. I love the way we work most of the time as far as just sort of how we should work, our ideological selves, not our actual selves, because we still have a lot of work to go on the on the realities. But the idea that you just give people positions because they gave you money or they hung out with you or they brought beer to the last party or whatever it is that you're rewarding, that makes me bonkers. When I look at somebody who's up for ambassador of, and I'm not talking about ambassador of, I don't know, someplace that I'm not all that anxious about invading us like Samoa, you know, like, the ambassador of Samoa should be a chill person, and it's okay with me if it's a chill person who brought beer to the last party. Like that, I'm okay with that. But the ambassador to China should not be because we were college roommates. Like that's not, that should be a person who has a history of studying China and understanding Chinese politics and understanding that that should be for Russia. That should be Judy Twig. Should be, she should be our ambassador to Russia. <laughs> right. Although I think she's teaching this fall, so she probably doesn't have time, but, <laughs> but I'm saying that, that those people should be people who, who know, they know the language, they've studied the history, they've, they know about these places instead of they were, they gave my campaign a hundred thousand dollars. So I'm going to make them the ambassador to, you know, wherever, which turns into a hotspot. Cause that's always what happens when you put somebody in that position who doesn't, who's a chucklehead, that's usually where the next war breaks out. And they're like, Oh man, cause now we got captain chucklehead over here trying to figure out what to do diplomacy wise with people where he doesn't even speak the language or understand the culture. Okay. I'm done now. I just needed to get that out. Okay. So I'm going to play devil's advocate in part because I love to play devil's advocate. And yes, you do. And but two, you're not going to win this time, darn it. Okay, but two, I, you know, just love to go ahead and blow your mind. Okay, one, one, one of the core values in any democratic regime is government responsiveness. If you want the government to be responsive to election outcomes, then those who are appointed to positions to run the government, okay, should be responsive to those who have won elections. Okay. Yes, and patronage serves that purpose. I hear this all the time from people on both the left and the right on the ideological spectrum. The government is not responsive to the people. Well, one of the easiest ways to make sure the government is responsive is to practice more patronage, not less. Because the only way you can get a position is if you supported the winner in an election, 
And if the winner in an election picks you to do a job and you don't do that job, guess what happens? You lose your job and you, somebody else we put in that position who will do the bidding of the person who actually won an election chosen by the people. That's patronage, right? That's the definition of patronage. It's not a good idea. Okay, but... <laughs> that, I don't think you should be able to buy a government job. Okay, that, but, that's not... That, that's, that's basically pimping out the government. Okay, but again... I'm, and I'm not interested in that. Okay, that's fine. But again, there's the recognition here that we're talking about two different values. You're talking about the value of good government. You want people into positions where they actually know they have knowledge, skills, and abilities to do a particular government job. Okay, I, that's- I want that in any job. Okay, that's fine. Okay, but again, okay, that's one value in a government. Okay, another value, particularly in democratic regimes, is the government is responsive to the people. And the people have exhibited their, if you will, desires through voting in elections. Now, if you wanna go ahead and say the elections don't matter, then vote doesn't matter. And therefore there can be all kinds of restrictions and limitations on the vote because you're basically going ahead and arguing that it doesn't really matter what the people's will is in an election. See, and I think you can thread this needle because I think that you can have an election, a person gets elected, we're getting off topic here and we gotta get back, but you can have a person who, who is elected and they get to pick people. I'm not saying they shouldn't get to pick people. I'm saying they should get to pick from a pool of people who are adequate to the position. Okay, but who gets to define the adequacy of the position? That actually does bring us back to this discussion of court packing. Because one of the critiques of court packing is you're not interested in quote unquote merit. You're interested in packing the court with people who are going to vote in cases in ways that further your legacy as a president or, or further the you know, ideals or policy preferences of your political party. Not when okay. I do it. Okay, well, not no, when, you... when I do it, I'm going to go with people who know things, who know the law. I'm going to go with neutral or moderate people who can be expected to take reasonable positions and who can be expected to reasonably apply the law. Okay. And so and there. So how, <laughs> okay. But again, and I have this conversation with my students, right? Okay. Because they don't like patronage. And they don't like the ideologically driven, if you will, process that has typically been used by Republican presidents, starting with Richard Nixon, but definitely continuing, or if you will, heightened by Reagan and Bush too. Um, you know, and, and, and Donald Trump basically um, outsourced the selection of federal judges to the Federalist Society. Okay, you know, if if you know. Judges met the, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the review or analysis of the Federal Society, then he was going to go ahead and pick them, right? Yes, he's got a list somewhere, apparently. Okay, Democratic presidents 
even Obama and Clinton, okay, uh, were much more interested in patronage. I mean, presidents of both parties go ahead and do this. You don't get on the radar of presidential administrations to be nominated as federal judge, okay, without demonstrating that you are either a solid Democrat or a solid liberal for a Democratic president or a solid conservative or a solid Republican for Republican presidents. But this all flows from how do you define merit? Or in your case, how do you define reasonable? Okay. They are, you know, reasonably, you know, competent at their job. Well, okay? then to take your argument, if I am elected president, you're trusting me to pick out what's reasonable. Okay, well then, but again, this comes back to if you <laughs> want to get rid of any elements of patronage or ideological preference or even focusing on demographic care considerations, as I pointed out before, you can plausibly make the argument that just because somebody is from Arizona doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a good Supreme Court justice. They were just born, raised, or living out west. Right. Good for I you. I don't want to get rid of ideological okay. of ideological standing. I want specifically neutral ideological standing. <laughs> okay. Well, good luck with that, Nia. <laughs> what history has shown is you're not interested in packing the court, okay? You want to go ahead and do what you know public administration scholars have been arguing since Woodrow Wilson in the late 1800s. Okay, you want quote unquote neutrally competent, you know, bureaucrats to do their job, which is fine, okay? That's a value, okay? But also understand that demographic, or not demographic, but democratic, okay, and uh, what I'm talking about here is small d, not democratic party, okay? But other democratic values, okay, are infused in the nomination and selection process for not only federal judges, Okay, but many, okay, government jobs. I know, it's who you know, it's, it's. I mean, th it's, think about, for instance, and, and I point money, this out. It's money, it's pressure, it's influence. And I point this out to my uh, students, many of whom self-identify as liberals, okay, who are, you know, they'll go ahead and say, we need a more objective, okay, selection process for Supreme Court justices. I'm like, okay. I said, you know, I'll ask for a show of hands. How many of you liked uh, the Supreme Court led by Chief Justice Earl Warren? And many of them raised their hand because they know that under the uh, leadership of Chief Justice Earl Warren, you got the Civil Rights Revolution, okay, you got the Criminal Rights Revolution, blah, 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 okay? And I'm like, Okay, he didn't get the job necessarily because of merit. He got the job because of a political deal. Right. And they were like, oh. and I'm like, <laughs> but it was, okay? He, right, because Johnson wanted to push those things no, no, through. No, it wasn't Johnson. It was Eisenhower. Ah. Okay, it was at the Republican National Convention, okay, in the 1952 presidential election. Eisenhower made a deal with Warren. You give up your delegates. Oh, that's right. And I'll put you on the Supreme Court. You know, that was the deal that Earl Warren, okay, struck. And the first 
vacancy was the chief justice position, right? Which, which I feel certain. I know that you've said that Eisenhower regretted that. Oh yeah, he said it was that he, deal. Yeah, he said his two biggest mistakes uh, that he made as president were both serving on the Supreme Court: Earl Warren and William Brennan. Well, at the time, they thought that Warren was what was a he was a, was a conservative. He wasn't going to do all the stuff yeah. that he ended up doing. Yeah. Right. That's the other thing. See, see, that's the problem with patronage is you think that this person is loyal and you think they're going to do your bidding or you think they're going to do along the lines of what you want. And then they turn into Earl Warren and you say, what the what the what? Because the, <laughs> who you think like when you what their past, what is it? Past is not prologue to future, future. in the that's sense right. that in the sense that they might get on the court and go bananas and do something completely different than what you think should happen. And that's why, and you've been seeing a lot of this, uh, a lot of different proposals, typically by Democrats, but even some Republicans are just like, you know, we need to continue our effort to pack the court with, you know, insert your favorite ideology. And I'm like, hey guys. It doesn't work. Okay, it frequently doesn't work, right? You know why? Because justices have lifetime appointment and they can do whatever they want once they get on the court. Exactly. Right? Do you know when Justice Ginsburg's birthday is? No, I don't know when it is. Yeah, me either. So neither one of us can take it away. <laughs> she, she, her birthday's coming no matter what. Like, you know what I mean? Like, once you put somebody on the Supreme Court, they're like, <laughs> knuckle crack. Okay, let's let's get in here and do some stuff. Like, what are you gonna what are you gonna do to them unless they murder someone, unless they do something so egregious that they get impeached? Which I know they can be impeached, right? But that's yeah. Has and, that uh, ever actually happened? One Supreme Court justice was impeached, but he was not found guilty. Um, so, like, not a super common thing to happen, right? No. So once they're there, they they can relax into their into their own personal it, it, how it, they view the law, and there's not thing one the president who appointed them can do about it. In Nia and I and and, and and I discussed this with my students, right? So the most infamous court packing plan was uh, attempted by whom? FDR. Yes, right? Because so, there had been one by what, Johnson or Jackson, one of the J presidents? Uh, Andrew Jackson, yes, yeah. But it didn't go anywhere either. No, it didn't go anywhere either, in part because he nominated, <laughs> he, even though the Senate was controlled by the Democratic Party, they thought so little about the quality of a couple of his nominees that they rejected them. <laughs> oh, okay. Which From their own party. Like, yeah, nah. okay. Yeah. I'm not putting that guy in. Thanks. Yeah, right. Go now. Okay, so FDR comes into office as president, and with some regularity, the United States Supreme Court, a narrow majority, okay, struck down, okay, significant New Deal legislation, and it upset him. And it upset him even more when he won re-election in 1936 by the then largest landslide in our presidential election history. Okay. He clearly had a mandate from the people. Clearly had a mandate, okay? Whatever but, else one may say about FDR, he was beloved. Yes, okay? So 
he goes ahead and pitches a core packing plan. And instead of just coming out and saying, hey, I want to go ahead and add people to the court because I'm tired of losing at the Supreme Court, he justifies it by saying <laughs> that a few of the justices were too old and they couldn't do their work. <laughs> right. Didn't he say they were over 70? Yes. So his pitch to the United States Congress was for every justice over the age of 70, and oh yeah, by the way, four of the five justices who consistently ruled against his New Deal legislation were over the age of 70. <laughs> Go figure, mm -hmm. right? So all of a sudden he would get four no, new positions and what was a narrow, you know, narrow losses would all of a sudden be very comfortable victories. That was the thought. The United States Congress, okay, sees through this, doesn't even vote on his core packing plan. But what does happen is- But was that a Republican controlled or a Democratic controlled? Oh, it was, it was overwhelmingly Democratic. Okay, yeah. so he had the Congress. Yeah, his-, his And the Congress gave him side eye and said, uh -uh, we don't right? think so. Yeah, but by the time he died during his fourth term in office, FDR had nominated Okay, eight out of the nine. Well, when you serve 12 and a half years or no, yeah, 13, was, 14? He was, it was just starting his 14th year as president. Okay. Yeah. But here, here's the cautionary yeah, tale. At that point, you, you probably are going to. But here's the cautionary tale. Even though the Supreme Court by the early 1940s was routinely ruling in favor of legislation passed by the Congress at the behest of FDR, okay, they quickly divided, okay? You had, you know, two or three of his nominees who were hardcore progressive, okay, you know, anything, you know, that would promote civil rights, the common man, the underdog, Okay, we'll find something in the Constitution to support that. But then you had others, okay, um, like Jackson, uh, like Felix Frankfurter, who were like, hey, wait a minute here. We didn't like an activist court when it ruled against the people's elected representatives. Why are we now acting as an activist court to rule against legislation at the state level, at the local government level, at the federal bureaucratic level, okay, we should be, okay, you know, restraint, okay? Well, and, and consistent. Okay, so it, you end up seeing a divide there, okay? But you should even take note of the fact that we have had Republican presidents who've nominated, okay, an overwhelming majority of the justices since Richard Nixon. I mean, think about this. Jimmy Carter had no Supreme Court nominees because there were no vacancies. Bill Clinton had two. Uh, Barack Obama had two, potentially three, when Scalia died, but the United States Senate didn't act on his nominee. So that's four people, four justices, okay? The rest of them have been picked, okay, by Republican presidents. Has the Supreme Court become more conservative since the Warren Court in that period of time? Yes. 
but it should be even more conservative than they haven't been simply because some of the justices, when they got on the court, ended up voting in ways that conservatives can't stand. Harry Blackman, picked by Richard Nixon, okay, writes the majority opinion in Roe v. Wade, giving women a right to choose. Sandra Day O'Connor, okay, picked by Ronald Reagan, ends up being the fifth vote, if you will, to maintain a woman's right to choose, right? She becomes the swing vote, the infamous swing moderate vote on, on the court. Anthony Kennedy, okay, replace, you know, picked by Ronald Reagan. He was a moderate conservative, right? And now you know, David Souter, okay, okay, he ends up becoming the, if you will, the, 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 the second coming of William Brennan, if you will, once he gets on the Supreme Court. John Roberts now is disappointing the conservatives, okay, because he's kind of sort of operating in this kind of sort of institutionalist, let's not rock the boat, okay, blah, blah, blah type of perspective. And the conservatives are like, no, we want an activist conservative court. And some of the justices are like, yeah, hey, thanks for sharing, but I got lifetime tenure and I'll do whatever I want. So, well, and, and um, J Rob and company um, has to, they also have to consider where the nation is, right? There's, there's, there's the idea that there is the protection of the institution, but there's also national zeitgeist that has to be taken into account when either taking cases or dealing with cases or not taking cases, right? They've done an admirable job of not taking a guns case yet again. Am I correct? Because, because there, there is not clear, um, Public opinion? Thank you. That's the phrase I want. There's not clear public opinion. There's clear public opinion about certain things, like yacht not just get murdered in the streets, right? Like that, everybody can agree on that. But how to achieve those things, that's still being worked out. And part of, it seems to me at least, part of a lot of times what the Supreme Court does is they say, wait a minute, let's just hold on for a little bit and see where public policy takes us, see where public opinion takes us before we jump in here and try to fix it. And in, in, in Nia, uh, your comment actually touches upon a, uh, a body of literature um, that uh, first started with uh, a political scientist by the name of uh, Robert Dahl, um, uh, D-A-H-L. But those who study the courts, they've supported his conclusion um, uh, if you look at the Supreme Court, even though the Supreme Court has independence, mean, meaning they don't have to run for re-election to maintain their jobs, okay? You know, they have tenure, right? Which frees them up to go ahead and issue unpopular rulings. The one branch of the federal government that has been probably the most congruent with public opinion, okay, throughout our country's history has been the court. And it's a rather remarkable conclusion, okay, for a body, okay, that doesn't have to really pay attention to public opinion, right? right. They're not like Congress where they have to get reelected every 10 minutes. 
or, you know, or a president hoping to win a second term, right? They don't have to, but they understand that they're probably their most significant power is not a hard power. It's a soft power. And that is its legitimacy. Right. Because the willingness of the other political branches or the public to comply with Supreme Court rulings is if the public, okay, thinks that the court is acting in legitimate ways. Right. Well, it goes back to the poll you mentioned at the beginning of this of this episode. Yes. Right? It it's trust. If yes. you trust that the Supreme Court is trying to look at things reasonably, or if you don't want to use the word reasonable, but trying to look at things in in a um, objective, as much as they can, objective manner, then you're more likely to trust the outcome and more likely to comply. Because if you don't think that the court is being too political or, you know, either side of the ideological spectrum, right. that usually generates higher public approval. And, and by the way, which you, hello, Congress, take <laughs> note of that. We like it when people, you know, are reasonable and work together and try to find moderate solutions. Hello. See how that works. See how their poll numbers are high and your poll numbers are dirt. I mean, yeah. It is rather remarkable the difference in the public's approval of the Supreme Court compared to Congress and the presidency. Yeah, I mean, I mean in some cases, people would rather get Ebola than than vote right. positively for the Congress. I'm like, okay. I mean, at one point, Congress uh, earlier this year was doing better compared to the president. But now Congress is back to its usual low teens public approval. Yeah. Okay. You how, know, do, how do we even function as a country when our governing body is yeah, it's, 90% it's, of us don't like them? Like it, right? Okay. But the Supreme Court, I mean, in, in part, I mean, you and I have talked about this before. I mean, one of the reasons why we, we just completed a summer of SCOTUS was to, if you will, get a better understanding of how the court does its work etc. And many Americans don't understand that, right? Right. I mean, it, it is a somewhat, well, comparatively, a secretive federal government institution, right? right. Um, you know, you know, the Supreme Court justices don't go on Instagram, or they don't go ahead and issue, you know, tweets to go ahead and say, woohoo, we just, it, you know, announce this ruling and we stuck it to so-and-so. No, they don't do that, right? Okay. No. Well, and when you ask them that, they, in interviews and stuff, they usually try to avoid oh. the appearance of political, I mean, Scalia aside, who like to, you well, know. Scalia or Ginsburg. I mean, which- They which, like to put their finger in people's eye, but other, but the rest of them have a very much a tendency to say, this was not a partisan decision. The decision here was made purely on constitutional or legal or statutory rules. And, you know, and here's my reasoning. And they go through their reasoning in very sort of neutral terms, um, which I think- we like those splashy figures. We like Scalia. We like Ginsburg. We like the splashy ones. But if they were all like that, <laughs> our our um, trust in them would deteriorate massively. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. 
that we only we only are okay with that when we think yeah but the other seven aren't doing that the other seven are chill and being like okay that's great y'all go out there and splash but we're gonna stay back here and you know yeah gently dog paddle yeah it's kind of sort of funny Uh, a number of students who have taken me from multiple courses eventually dawns on them and, and they've remarked this they're like you know Augie you're two favorite institutions to study, uh, the bureaucracy and the courts, are comprised mainly of people who, one, don't like the spotlight, two, are extremely bland and boring, (laughs) okay? And three, okay, would rather never to be heard or seen. (laughs) Yeah, and see, I, and, and I would add to that, who, honestly deeply believe in the work oh yeah the vast majority of people in the bureaucracy and the vast majority of people on the courts believe in the work if they didn't believe in the work they wouldn't be there because it is not hugely it's not highly rewarded financially it's certainly not highly rewarded with public praise or accolade or anything like that so you have to do it because you believe in it because that's not you're not getting a lot of gimme in any other way. Yeah, you believe in the work, you also believe in service, right? right? I mean, think about this, right? right? I mean, what's gonna go ahead and motivate you as a Supreme Court Justice when, you know, you, you know, you are serving, you know, what is it, Clarence Thomas just finished his, he's been on the court well over 20 years. Right? Is he the longest right now? Yeah, yeah. He was appointed by uh, Bush 41, okay? Um, I mean, John Roberts just finished 15 years, okay, as Chief Justice, okay? And, and you know, that, that, that just blows my mind, right? Yeah, that can't be right. Okay, Ruth Bader, <laughs> right? You know, she's already had four or five bouts of cancer, right? I mean, anytime she issues an opinion, she basically knows that about half the country uh, hates her and the other half of the country uh, likes her, but even of that, the, the half that like her probably haven't read the opinion. So, I mean, you know, it's. Well, and she constantly gets the crap about, are you going to retire? Are you going to die? Yeah, are you right. going to do something? You know, like. I mean, how, how she much? can't every day she's got to get up and think, but I'm doing the work I love. Yeah. Right. Because I mean, otherwise, it, why would you roll out of bed? Why yeah. would you, why would you put in for that? I mean, and, and we're talking about some really talented individuals. I mean, you right. can see. Who could have made a lot of money doing yes. something else. Yeah. I mean, think about this. I mean, John Roberts um, was, uh, uh, before he was nominated to serve, uh, the, before he was nominated for the second time to serve on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, okay, was a member of the elite Supreme Court bar, right? He was pulling down easily okay a half a mil to three quarters of a million of dollars every year now he's not making chump changes chief justice right he's pulling down almost 300 grand a year as chief justice right but, but it's in the, nothing comparatively in the private sector okay the dude would be just rolling in the cash right, right? just rolling in it right um you know uh you know you think about elena kagan right Okay. Um, Dean of Harvard Law School, she probably made 
she probably made what she's making as a Supreme Court justice. justice, right? And, and that's but not, she was in control of that institution as opposed to yeah right i mean now one of nine up, yeah one of nine right okay and she basically knows that four or five of the other nine okay are, are, are going to rule against you know what she would probably prefer right? yeah um i mean these are people who okay service matters the the work matters right um uh, but once you get on the court Okay, you know, court packing, yeah, good luck with that. And, and that's why, and I, I walk a fine line with my students because I want them to dream and I want them to go ahead and reform or, you know, institutions that they think need to be reformed. But whenever I hear them talk about court packing, okay, just I get this big old smirk on my face, okay, because the history of the Supreme Court institutionally, the history of presidents trying to shape and mold, okay, the Supreme Court doesn't bode well for court packing in the future. <laughs> I mean, I'm not like, okay, thanks for sharing, but... I'm just saying, when I do it, it's going to be different. <laughs> and, and on that cackle of laughter... All right. Thank you for talking to me about this. And when I'm ready to pack the court, do you want to be on it? Uh, yeah, I, I guess. But that would mean that I wouldn't get to be able to teach all my classes. I'm not entirely sure. I'll get back to you. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thanks, Augie. <laughs> Bye, Nia. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.